Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm Drake. And I'm Kyle. And today we have our, I always say special guest. <laughs> I, I think we I think we need to stop saying special guest, but I don't But I don't know when we stop saying special guest because you're also guest. extra yeah. special here. So this will be the last time we say special, but we have an extra special guest today, Denitza Dramkin. And we called we called Denitza Denny and everybody around mm-hmm. the around the uh, UBC calls her Denny. So we're going to continue to call her Denny throughout the podcast. But anyway, we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about your work today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So give us a little bit of spiel where like what lab are you in and, and where are you from and, and what do you do? Um, so, hi, my name is Denny, like Drake said. Um, I am currently a second year master's student working at the Center for Cognitive Development at the University of British Columbia, um, and I'll be starting the PhD program there in the fall as well. Uh, Denny, why don't you tell us uh, something about what we might learn today? Um, sure. So, like, I guess a better question is, like, what aren't you going to learn? No, <laughs> um, yeah, so I am really interested in... I guess, like, broadly speaking, like, how children learn, how does um, language and cognition interact. And so what I'm hoping to um, talk about is some of the research that kind of explores, like, how children learn to utilize their intuitive senses and integrate that with language. And I'll talk a bit more about, like, what do I mean by, like, intuitive senses. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially, I'm wanting everyone to just kind of get this sense that you know even we're born with like so many unique cognitive capacities that we may not even realize but what's unique about humans is that even though we share a lot of these cognitive abilities with other animals we have language and that allows us to kind of uniquely think about and represent um, a lot of these abilities in ways that other animals can't Great. I mean, we haven't actually, I think you're the first developmental researcher we've had on. So yeah. I'm excited to actually mm-hmm. start talking about uh, non-adults because <laughs> that's all we do, we've done so far. Yeah. Um, uh, you you kind of said intuit. Um, can you give us just like a, a really simple idea as to what you mean by that? Like, Yeah. So when I say like intuitive senses, so these are things that um, you're essentially born with that you don't really have to think about. Um, the lab that I work at, we usually look at um, children's intuitive sense of number. And what I mean by that is like, for example, if you were to like, as a kid, like do like those little guessing games where there's like a bunch of candy in a jar and you're trying to like guess the closest to it. Like Mm -hmm. you're using your intuitive sense of number where you can just like look at something and kind of just like know, okay, maybe there's like about like 50 candies in the jar or Mm -hmm. like same thing when you're at the grocery store and you look down at your basket and you're like, okay, I probably have like 13 items so I can go to the express checkout. So that's kind of (laughs) like this intuitive sense of number is what we kind of have like readily available that we don't really have to think about so much. And it's also the same that uh, thing where like if, for example, I put like two plates of cookies in front of you like without counting you're gonna know which plate has more cookies on it and you're probably <laughs> gonna want that plate <laughs> yeah yes I will um, so with the intuitive sense of number like an example being a child that probably doesn't have as strong of an intuitive sense of number would be an individual that looks at a jar of jelly beans and says there's got to be at least five billion mm-hmm. in that jar right versus the kid that's like uh, maybe a hundred yeah so um, yeah there's definitely a lot of like variants of like people's like intuitive abilities uh, mm-hmm. with number. That's something that changes like across development. Like even as adults, like we're not perfect at it. So even though I mostly work with kids, I also do stuff with adults and I can tell you from first hand experience, <laughs> they're yeah. always not that great. <laughs> um, but it is something that kind of develops like over time. And it also takes time for children to actually know like what a number means, right? Mm-hmm. But like once uh, a child has that ability to know, like, you know, when you ask for five and they're able to actually bring you like five jelly beans, right. um, the kids that are kind of like closer to giving you that like, 
approximate amount. So like the kid that maybe says like 30 when there's actually 50, maybe doesn't have a, such a great intuitive sense of number, but the kid that says maybe like 45 would have like a better sense. Right. And yeah, and there's like a lot of research in that about like why there might be individual differences there and like what individual differences could mean for things like your math ability and stuff like that later on in life. Interesting. Yeah. Is there a, is there a sort of scaling effect? Like I would imagine it'd be, it'd be a lot easier to innately or intuitively distinguish between one and two or, you know, five and six. Whereas if you're dealing with a hundred and or 101 it might be a little bit more complicated is there do you find that in the research that there's sort of yeah. a so actually that's a really great question Kyle because that is how we think the intuitive sense of number works um, there's kind of like two systems you can kind of think about it and one system we use for very tiny numbers so these are things like you know if I put like one jelly bean in front of you you're gonna know it's one if I put two you're gonna know it's two three and four mm -hmm. and then there's this idea that we use our like more like our system two, like more of our approximate sense when the numbers get larger start guesstimating yeah, yeah. And that's when we, we're like okay maybe this is like 10 11 12 and a lot of it is dependent on ratio so like for example if I put like a plate of you know 10 cookies and another plate versus 20 cookies, you're gonna know that the plate with 20 cookies has more on it. But when I put a plate of like, let's say 10 versus 11, you won't necessarily be able to tell the difference between them as easily. So yeah, so there is definitely a kind of ratio dependence with our intuitive sense of number and the larger, more distinct ratios there are, like the easier it is for us to be able to tell two quantities apart from each other. Right, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Like if, if there's half of something like if, mm -hmm. it, if you're comparing one versus two and then 50 versus 100 i'm sure you'll see the same same effects right. but whenever you have like you said 99 to 100 yeah you're talking about one percent versus one and two which is 50 percent. that's a massive difference right yeah. and so it does make sense that that ratio or the scaling kind of takes effect especially with the large mm -hmm. numbers um, yeah there's still um, some debate within the field about like why we might have like some sort of like scaling and exactly what that looks like. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but it is like just like you're saying, like, you know, even if we think about it, like in those terms, like, of course, we'd be able to like more easily tell like 50 from 100. Right. right. And <laughs> so, like the way that the way that I think of it, it's like if I have a small pie in front of me and then I have a large pie in front of me, yeah. if I'm cutting the same fractions, I'm going to have to cut. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm cutting off a quarter of the pie, I think I'll know that I'm cutting off a quarter of the pie. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm interested to explore uh, just this intuitive or this innate ability that, that children mm -hmm. have, because I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of questions that people generally have about children is like, how do they do it? Mm -hmm. How do they do all these things that they, like, how do they, how do they think the way they think and how do they grow and learn so quickly? Uh, are there some terms or any definitions that we might need to know? Yeah. So um, one I've already kind of mentioned, which is like our intuitive sense of number. Um, this is kind of more of like the colloquial term for it. Um, but you can find like if you wanted to like look up some of this stuff later, also this umbrella term of the um, approximate number system or the ANS, uh, not to be confused with the <laughs> autonomic <laughs> nervous system. <laughs> Very unfortunate acronym there. Um, but yeah, but that's essentially what we're talking about when we say that it's like something that like very quickly you can just kind of like guesstimate like how many items are like in your shopping basket or like on a plate or whatever. Mm. Um, the other thing that might be kind of helpful is when we kind of talk about something that is like innate, we mean that something this is like you're born with it, you don't have to learn it. Um, this is kind of also relevant to this idea of like core cognition. So like things or like abilities that children can just do without any sort of, of like formal education or experience. Do you have any examples of core cognitions? Um, yeah, so number is considered to be like one of them, right? So like 
because it's something that you are like newborns have you know other animals have this like monkeys have this fish even have this birds have this um there's also a lot of other research in um like other domains like for example like in social moral development it's believed that we might even have a sense of like morality that we can kind of judge like who's nicer mean like right off the bat or things like uh, a sense of like geometry and like not like formal geometry like you know a square plus b square yeah. c square <laughs> but this idea that we can kind of know where we are within a physical space and be able to kind of like orient ourselves around like a room so these are all kind of things that are believed to be something that you know we don't necessarily need to learn within our environment but these are kind of senses that um that even infants are born with about like how they kind of understand like intuitively how things work going back to some of the core cognitions and, and what we're talking about with numbers and language um what what does the field understand about that to this point Oh God. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> it's a loaded question. Any it is well. So there's still with any sort of um, feel. Well, I guess with any sort of topic within uh, developmental psychology, there is a lot of debate. <laughs> um, oh. There are people in camps that believe that um, this thing exists, but this other thing doesn't exist, or like this thing is like actually just another representation of this other thing. So there's quite a bit of debate about you know like what children do and do not possess. Um, so as far as like what the field already knows, well, if you combine all the things together, it kind of seems like we don't know a lot, <laughs> um, but that's just kind of like the nature of this work, you know, whereas like with adults, like you can ask them like, oh, why did you do that? Like with, uh, children, like babies, like we have to essentially kind of come up with that explanation ourselves mm -hmm. and come up with theories and like uh, methodology that will actually like tap into like those abilities. But of course there's going to be someone that says, mm, I think you're kind of reading too much into it or something like that. Yeah. You have to infer yeah. infer intent from behavior or action, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Man, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess within uh, relation to kind of like what we kind of started talking about with this like intuitive sense of number, um, the field largely <laughs> um, agrees with the fact that, you know, this is something that humans possess like from birth so we can find evidence of children's ability to distinguish numbers apart from each other as soon as they're born um and we also have this uh, ability that we share with like other animals so like i kind of briefly mentioned earlier like there's been a lot of studies done like on different uh primates there's been studies done like even like on rats and like pigeons and even like little guppies that show that they can also distinguish between different quantities and so in that sense this seems to be something that you know not only we as humans possess but other animals seem to have it as well and that kind of makes sense from like an evolutionary perspective if you see uh, a herd of 30 animals <laughs> and you want to get one of those animals mm -hmm. and if you were to go in and try and take one of those animals you'd probably have a lot harder time yeah. versus say one or two right mm -hmm. so then being able to gauge that as an animal as a predator and as a prey saying can I get through that herd of 50 predators? Probably not. Right. <laughs> if there's only one and there's 100 of us, maybe I could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective for most animals to have that ability. Right. right? And I mean, I think about it this way, like if you're like, um, like even let's say like if you're like an elephant or something and you want to like go, you want to go to the place that has like the most food. So yeah, why would you go to the tree with only like two apples on it when you could go to the tree with like 50 apples, yeah. right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I assume elephants eat apples. I have but, no clue. You know. <laughs> As an aside, I saw uh, in Hawaii, I saw they were feeding some elephants at the yeah. zoo I went to. And those things are insane. Apparently, they'll eat like an entire banana tree in a day. Okay, well. Like the whole yep. tree. 
there like how many tons? <laughs> so it's like, that kind of makes sense. When you think about it. I saw one of them just eating bananas. Like how many bananas do you need to eat in a day to fill yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Imagine yeah. an elephant trying to feed itself. But it just like ripped the trunk apart with its with its t- um with its snout trunk. trunk. <laughs> I was like, what it, it ripped the trunk with its trunk. Yeah. Oh, that's why. I Actually, that's there. that's pretty accurate. It'll rip the trunk with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> that's just. Yeah. Yeah. So humans aren't special in this in this case. All, all animals are, or a lot of animals that have been researched have the ability to kind of or this sense of number. Mm-hmm. But when does this kind of kick in with humans? Like, so what is the age that children start to have this sense? I imagine it's not right fresh out of the womb. When can you measure it? I guess. Yeah. And and when is it obvious that they are differentiating? Because because you said it's it's something that's innate, mm-hmm. right? but you can't really measure it the same way for every mm-hmm. age, right? So yeah. wh- how do you go about this or what, what do you do? Yeah, so um, I can tell you, so from like uh, early like newborn and infant studies, they're usually done through eye tracking measures. So they'll show like groups of items on the screen for, for newborns and then they'll kind of measure where they're actually looking. But this is usually just to kind of distinguish between two quantities. So they're not sitting there going like, okay, little newborn, can you actually count like one, two, three, <laughs> yeah. four, five for me, right? <laughs> um, but this idea that we have this like intuitive sense of number from birth um, is a separate kind of question to like, how do we end up like using it, mm. right? So, you know, um, even though we're all born with a sense of number and we share it with other animals, we don't actually acquire the ability to kind of map like precise quantity to this intuitive sense until like much later childhood. So in developmental terms, like going from like a newborn to like a five-year-old, that's like a long time. And <laughs> it's not until like age five that you see most kids that are actually able to, uh, you know, give you precise quantities for something. So when you ask them like, hey, can you bring me like 10 jelly beans? They'll actually bring you exactly 10. But before that, they'll bring you like some random number. Like sure, they can count for you. Like they can actually recite for you like the verbal count system, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, but they don't have a, a sense of meaning and attachment to what those quantities are. And actually some cultures never require it at all. So even if you uh, have like language and you have the ability to kind of integrate um, like a count system with your intuitive sense of number, it doesn't necessarily happen for everyone. So for example, like the Paraha tribe in like Brazil and like the Mandaruhu, like they don't have precise number words for their all words. So for example, they might have like one, two, three, and then they have a word that's like more than three. They can still tell apart different quantities from each other. So like they would also know that a plate with like 20 cookies is more than a plate with 10 cookies. But if you ask them like, hey, can you actually bring me like 10 cookies? They'll bring you some number. (laughs) And if you ask them like, you know, maybe bring me like 20 cookies, they might bring you some more cookies than that. Or it could be exactly the same because to them, they don't actually have like a word for it. Right. Yeah. And I think I find that very interesting because I think of like the way that we interact as uh, Western culture, we're like, this is how much money this 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 burrito costs. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and um, and let's say for a second that it's it's more than three dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're like, okay, well I'll give you more than three dollars, but that might it might actually cost ten dollars, and yeah. then you're giving them four, and there could be a lot of confusion based on that. So you're like, oh well, whatever the word is for more than three, I'm giving you more than three dollars. No, 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 I want more than three dollars. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'll give you more than three dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's been like a lot of debate about like, well, if you think about it, like, well, why would that be the case? And part of it could be that, you know, it was just not necessary for like mm-hmm. their culture. Like for us, like as a like Western society, like when you go and buy something, they want exactly that amount. Like if yeah. it's like if your burrito costs like three fourteen, 
you can't just give them three dollars they want those 14 cents <laughs> right and and actually there's been um some kind of like studies done that show that with the increasing kind of like westernization of like the world you know these people are kind of struggling a little bit because they'll right. often get like ripped off because they have no like exact way for like quantifying exactly how much change they should get or yeah. something like that um so a lot of it kind of seems to also be kind of dependent on like the needs of that society or that culture but for the most part uh we kind of expect children to kind of uh, have a like precise understanding of quantity by like their fifth birthday um and then like by their 10th birthday we kind of expect that they'll be able to kind of use number words and represent number kind of closer to what we can do like as adults as well it almost seems to me as though they're divergent systems in some way mm -hmm. that haven't yet mapped to one another right so it's like oh okay i know i know what number 10 is i can count to it i know that it's greater than nine mm -hmm. and less than 11 mm -hmm. but it's like th there isn't that direct mapping to a quantity necessarily it's a it's a it's sort of a conceptual idea of there being yeah. it sounds like it sounds like you're they're learning a language right within the counting to 10 like your example they're learning the language that mm -hmm. and the order of that language but they're not necessarily mapping that onto the actual arithmetic or the mathematic. Yeah. Right? And in, in order, so it, it's more kind of akin to like, you know, when you recite like the ABCs as a kid and mm -hmm. then they ask you like, and you know, when you're singing and you're like elemental P and they're like, okay, well, what letters is elemental P? And it's like, well, elemental P is an elemental P. <laughs> and then you have to kind of start conceptualizing that, oh no, elemental P is actually L, M, N, Oh, and P, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and with uh, with number words, you know, when you're actually reciting, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you're a child less than five, you don't necessarily know that nine comes before ten because it's smaller than ten, mm -hmm. right. right? It takes a while for them to understand this idea of like cardinality and there's been like a host of studies that show like you know kids actually kind of come to this understanding in a very like slow and stage like fashion so first they'll understand what one is and then they'll be like oh okay so like one is just this thing yep. and then they'll understand that like two is this and then they're like two and then they'll understand three and then yeah. they'll, they'll get three mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it'll shoot up and they're just like oh at one point they just yeah they're like oh i get it it's like yeah. you know <laughs> this this is why this number is here and like if i go like one before this this means this is one less if i go one above this is one more yeah so yeah okay that's really interesting um why does it take children so long to figure that out uh, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah I, 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 mean, I say that only because we talk about like this innate sense of number and, and you'd think Oh, part of having an innate sense mm -hmm. of numbers, understanding what values are, but yeah. that's clearly not the case, right? Right. Well, I mean, that kind of goes back to this idea of like, well, what purpose do we have for actually having like exact quantities? And it may just be the case that it just takes time for children to understand, you know, why exactly they need to know what a one is, what a two is, what a three is, and so on. Um, because even though innately, like, you know, like, for example, like a monkey doesn't need to know like what the difference between five and six is, right? Like, mm. they, or like with the difference between five and 10, if they can look at a tree and know that like, oh, over here, there's like more mangoes than this other tree, yeah. then that's all they really need, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of kind of the sense of like, well, why does it take kids so long? And we really don't know. I mean, it's the, the struggle is that you have this system that is completely separate from language and you're trying to 
tack something onto there that maybe you know doesn't necessarily need to be there and so kind of having kids struggle to like integrate the two is kind of testament to the fact that you know it's not always easy for us to integrate language with cognition i think we kind of take it for granted because you know as adults like we use language and we reason about everything using language but initially doesn't start off so easily for Mm -hmm. kids if you were to ask a kid which group has more they can say yeah this one obviously has more and again i mean not to beat a dead horse but from an evolutionary perspective it makes sense that they that's what is intuitive it's like this is more same with the monkey right this this tree has more mangoes i'm obviously going to go to the tree with more mangoes even if i don't need those mangoes it's just there if i need it whereas when you say well how what what, what, how many have 15 bananas or 15 mangoes that's kind of like an arbitrary statement it's not about how much there is it's it's being specific Mm -hmm. and i think as a culture that's what we we really strive for is specificity when it comes to money or numbers we always want to be specific uh and so it makes sense that that would take a little bit longer uh to develop and so you are doing work on figuring out what the hell is going on with this right (laughs) so so, i mean it's 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 really interesting and it's something that i hadn't thought of until you Mm -hmm. i I heard about the work that you're doing it makes sense that you really want to figure out because it's so important in our culture and in our society to, to be specific with numbers, how do we do it and when do yep. we do it well? Uh, and maybe what goes wrong, what what happens if things aren't going at, according to plan or developmental uh, stages, right? Yeah. Cool. So so how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. How are you doing this? Like what is the way of approaching this? Yeah, so, um, well, there's a couple ways that uh, we do this. Uh, the first is kind of, well, we need to kind of gauge like, well, what do children understand, right? And so we first want to see like, well, how precise is their intuitive sense of number? And so a lot of the work uh, in the field has focused on just like letting kids discriminate or like differentiate between two quantities. And that kind of goes back to like our er earlier conversation about this idea of like, you know, we can maybe easily tell a difference between, you know, 10 versus 20 or 50 versus 100. But like, you know, 10 versus 11 or like eight versus nine is going to be a little bit tricky for us. And so there we find that we have this like ratio dependence. So like, you know, like I said earlier, like larger ratios are much more easily uh, distinguishable and Mm -hmm. so if you present kids like an array of blue and yellow dots and you say like which side has more dots for the most part they can really easily tell you like you know the left side has more dots on it um except for when like the ratio is like really fine like a one like to one ratio or like or like one well sorry like one to like 1.1 or something like that yeah 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 Mm um and then but in order to kind of gauge whether or not children kind of have this ability to integrate um, language with that sense and we usually give kids like tasks where they can like count for us like so not only can they count but then we'll say like hey can you like reach into this bag and actually give me like 10 of these items and see if they can do that um, and then we can also test them on like their ability to identify something so if I show them like set of blue and yellow dots and I asked them okay how many blue dots are here then we should see that they're roughly able to give us an estimate that is relatively precise and it gets more precise like throughout development so like a five-year-old might say like a set of you know 12 dots looks like eight to them and then maybe you'll see that a seven-year-old says like okay this looks like nine and then kind of like as you progress like you'll get closer and closer and closer to that correct amount right yeah does any of that have to do with just your ability to count faster or count more accurately as you age or you develop heuristics in the way in which you quantify numbers like 
Yeah, so um, I think that's that's definitely something that a lot of researchers have like looked into, like, you know, why is it that some children are better than others? Um, there's also like kind of an emerging desire to know that, well, like, what is our intuitive sense of number really bias, right? Like, I mean, we think of number as being something very mathematical, like, you know, you have to learn about numbers in school, and then you have all this research that tells you, like, oh, well, no, you were born with number, and so what does that really mean? And so there is a lot of emerging research that's kind of focused on this idea of, like, well, we know that we can tell apart qu different quantities to each other, like, to a certain degree. And does that help us with like math later on? And so um, even like a lot of the work um, done by my current supervisor, um, Darko Udik, like he's actually looked into some work about like the developmental trajectories, like how your ability to distinguish between two sets of items, like more precisely, how does that relate to your math performance later on? And we find like evidence that there is definitely some like correlations there between like how good you are at being able to say like this site has more dots and your ability to actually perform better like on standardized like math I mean, so building off that, uh, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit, mm -hmm. but I see from what you just said, I, I kind of see the, the real importance of, of, of understanding this mm -hmm. is, is it really relies on like, what, what about people that aren't developing well, or they're not, right. they're not following the typical uh, developmental stages. And will, does that impact them later on in life? Mm -hmm. I see that being as a big implication with the work that you're doing. Um, is that the goal of the work that you do, you're doing or is it is there is there more to it uh, than just that implication? Yeah, so I think there's definitely a lot of like implications with this work. I mm -hmm. think right now there's more of this looming question of well, what is it the kids are even doing? Like, does it even matter for them to have this like really good sense of number, right? And how does this their really good sense of number relate to their other abilities to like distinguish between quantities, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still like a lot of like questions that we don't have the answer to. And like I kind of mentioned before, there's a lot of debate in the field. Like there's still a very much like heavily uh, like debated issue of like well do we even have an intuitive sense <laughs> um, there's definitely like you know people that still say like no it's actually not like we don't have an intuitive sense right. of number it's a learned process. Yeah, yeah that or either that or it's kind of this general like maybe sense of magnitude that we can apply to like other things like you know like line length or like area like we can say that like this watermelon is bigger than this watermelon right. but we don't necessarily have to have an intuitive number sense to do that and so there's like definitely like that side of the field as well and so i think that that, um, you know, a lot of the implications of this work are not only kind of understanding like, well, how does this impact children who maybe are struggling to right. actually kind of, you know, learn what number words mean or like, you know, succeed in like, you know, math and stuff like that. But there's also this sense of like some of the implications are actually like being able to tackle a lot of the debate within the field itself, right? right? Like find evidence to show that like, yes, like this is a um, like domain specific ability that's not just something that like is a general magnitude system, but it actually is a number system or right. this idea that like your um, sense of number is not related to like, you know, another uh, like maybe like an executive functioning ability or something like that. Like mm -hmm. all of those things are still like kind of questions that we are left to tackle with about like, you know, what is it really that we're even studying? And so I think kind of the implications are kind of like on one side of the spectrum, like a scientific implication yeah. versus the real world implication, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. D trying to resolve some of the issues within the literatures, I think is, is one of the most important <laughs> yeah. things scientifically. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a huge implication. Uh, but I know anybody that doesn't, isn't within that field will always be asking, but what about the real world? <laughs> like yeah. what's, what's the real implication? I think it's there. And as you said, like it's super important that we know 
how people develop how pe- when people should be developing effectively and what mm-hmm. they where they should be what the benchmarks are on average so that if they're astray from that mm-hmm. uh that we can kind of maybe bump in and try and improve things or address things through education or, yeah. or what ha- what have you yeah and i think that's kind of one of the challenges that we really don't talk too much about within the field of like developmental psychology because you know as researchers we're constantly interacting with families and like you know parents will be there and they'll like hear that their kid like i mean they can hear feedback on computers sometimes so you know in our stimuli they'll be if we say like i wish that has more dots and they say like blue but it was really yellow as soon as we press on the keyboard they get like oh that's not right Mm -hmm. and then parent hears that and they want to know like oh did my child do really bad and it's like well I mean, we want to be able to kind of say like, you know, what this really means. But I think kind of in developmental psychology, a lot of our concerns are more not about like how to help people get better, but it's actually just understanding like what kids are even doing because there's still like so much that we don't know about like, you know, children, like how they develop and what abilities they do possess. And like I uh, was mentioning earlier, there's still so much debate within the field. I mean, there's still debate about like even like whether or not children have this like ability to judge like moral character really early on. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think when you kind of look at it that way, like we kind of have this like weird responsibility where we're trying to kind of answer these very nitty gritty questions that maybe aren't as interesting to the general public, but it's almost like we have to know like what do kids even have to start with before we can even say whether or not it's bad for them to not have this yeah right exactly like if we don't understand what's actually happening and what is available to happen yeah how do we know if somebody's achieving their goals right Right. you know you could be getting every every single one of those illusions correct where you you choose the right side but you're doing it at the age of eight yeah it's Mm -hmm. like well when it's to be expected it should be expected right and 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 but you you really can't know that until you've sampled the population and and you have an idea as to what general development looks like so yeah yeah i've got two questions for you sure you may or may not have the answers for. I'm excited to hear them. Okay. <laughs> so first one is, is, is more of a broader one. Again, kind of getting at the implications, but also the real world. How much of this is kind of supported in our education system? So I, as you talk about this, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, this is kind of why I was doing things in school at a young age. Like this is kind of like the formation of my mathematics, like training as a kid, I was, I was learning what uh, fractions were mm-hmm. and what, like how much is here and which one and how to estimate. And I think it was like, there was a progression, right? Where it's yeah. okay. Now I'm learning to estimate. Now I'm learning how to add. Now I'm learning how to subtract. Now I'm learning how to multiply and divide and things like that. So is the work that you guys are doing in developmental, which is really like super impactful when you're talking about what age we should be expecting these things. Uh, like when should children know how to do this or when should they be, be in the process of learning it or picking it up and being able to, to uh, elicit it or show it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that supported in the education systems? So in some ways, like yes and no, right? So um, I think there's this idea that like, there should be like a very specific time frame for like when kids should be able to do this and when they should be able to do this and when they should be able to do this. And part of the challenge is that when you don't actually know what and when children are supposed to be able to do stuff at all, then does it really matter if Billy can't do this thing by grade one, but he can do it in grade two, right? right? And so I think there's always this pressure um, to kind of make sure that kids are meeting certain requirements, but we don't necessarily know like, when those requirements should actually be met Mm. and um i think that it's gets a little bit more challenging to kind of think about that when we're studying something that 
like our sense of number because well like again like when we hear number we think of something like oh, okay this is like really a turn education is related to math like clearly like if you have number then you can do all these other things but then when we look at it from more of like a research perspective we're not asking those types of questions we're asking like well how does this develop how does this interact with other abilities and like you know it's not so much about like how to make sure that we hit certain milestones but it's about trying to see like what kids can naturally do and so i think that there's this pressure of making sure kids are actually able to like perform in certain ways but there's not always a lot of research to back up the fact that like kids should be able to do that by that age right and um there's a lot of pressure for like teachers especially to like teach kids very explicitly a lot of things but there's also like kids actually like learn a lot of stuff like implicitly Mm -hmm. right and so i think that there's a lot of like um stress on being able to like show kids like hey like this is how you do this and this is how you do this but we don't necessarily know if that's something that they can easily pick up on or if it's something that is really tapping into their intuitive abilities and we also know that like you know there's there's a lot of individual differences like kids learn uh better in some domains and other kids learn better in other domains and so what does it really mean for a teacher to be sitting there like lecturing versus like i don't know actually giving them kind of like more of a hands-on like them actually kind of facilitating that learning Mm -hmm. so active learning versus passive yeah yeah no that's really interesting i i think one thing that i'd like to point out too is and i think you alluded to it is that what you're looking at is children developing and how cognition Mm -hmm. develops over um childhood and adolescence and then they come into a lab like mine and it's just assumed that everybody comes in with the same developed cognitive abilities Mm -hmm. i can pay attention i can uh, I have working memory, I have, you know, all these other executive functions, emotional processing, all these other cognitive processes are already there. And we just assume that. But I think it's really interesting to actually sit down and say, yeah, but how do they develop? Yeah. And like, where do they come from? Because, you know, they, some of them may be innate and your brain is wired to perform these things in a particular way. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, to actually allow for them to develop fully and to be uh, sort of mastered systems within your brain is is a really interesting yeah. way of thinking about it. Also, I've al- I've also been recently interested in, in sort of aging populations mm-hmm. and older adults and how we assume that cognition just kind of tops out and then it's there. Yeah. I think the general public might feel that way sometimes, but there's actually, you can see that decline really sharply at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that to me is really interesting too. So there's, there's almost this reverse um, need once we understand how it develops, we can understand then how it starts to deteriorate over time right. as well. Yeah. One of the the things that we're really interested in is knowing like, well, what is what are kids even working towards? Like, how good are we even as adults? And when do children actually reach those adult like levels? Right. And so I think this uh, this sense of like, well, we got to make sure kids are doing better at being able to get to like the stage is like, well, we have to know what the stage is to start with, <laughs> right? Like what are kids even working towards? And one of the kind of challenges that uh, I faced like very early on in my career is that like, there's a lot of ambiguity in like how to even go about asking this question in kids. Like how do we even test this in kids? And like, we don't always know like what adults even look like. And so um, before we kind of get to the sense of like, well, how can we make kids better? It's like, well, we have to know what kids can do. We have to know what adults can do. And then we have to decide whether or not it matters for them to be really good at age five at this or age seven at this or like nine or something like that. Right. And so, I mean, let's what is back. the value of hitting that benchmark at right. that point? What yeah. does it buy you in right. the long term? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like going back to one of the most 
primary psychological debates, the nature versus nurture. How do you determine whether or not uh, a kid that's age five that is now being able to associate associate a number with uh, an actual amount? Uh, how do you know that it's not from practice, from being taught, like being practicing something as, or it's just an innate ability? Mm-hmm. How do you go about controlling for those things? Like, uh, I don't, what age five, is that preschool? Is that preschool yeah. age or that's like kindergarten, like isn't kindergarten, it? Yeah. So like at that age, they're still, they're like approaching the point where they're being taught this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how are you able to kind of parse that uh, and say, well, th- this five-year-old, do you have five-year-olds that are like, have no education and then you have like obviously it's unethical to, to be able yeah. to control that but like how do you control practice yeah so i mean that's really hard right um yeah. because especially like we get a lot of families that come from you know very different backgrounds mm-hmm. sometimes and but that's also one of the challenges that we have in research and that we find that you know sometimes we'll get like a lot of parents that are like in like middle upper socioeconomic yeah. backgrounds that because they're the ones that have time to come into the lab yeah. right and then so you wonder like okay are these kids actually performing this way because like they had some sort of experience that helped them do this or is this like a natural ability yeah. um there's been like this really big push for us as researchers to make sure that we're not just focusing on these like western educated industrialized rich democratic countries right like this like w- these weird people mm-hmm. and um i mean the same thing goes for kids i think the we try our very best to control for things but i mean there's always going to be like that five-year-old that walks in and can't count to 10 right but like we expect that they should be able to count to at least 25 so we kind of within the field like we use like standardized like assessments so like for example we'll like see if like their performance is consistent with what is expected on like some sort of like standardized like math assessment so we use like things like the tema um to kind of control for that which is basically like this like large pool and sample from like you know many many different regions to try to get like okay at what age are we kind of expecting this ability to emerge and so i mean the thing that we can do is we can take our very best guess by taking this like average Mm -hmm. but again like we don't necessarily always know because you know even like through like my personal experience i'll definitely be like there's definitely been times where i'm like okay like a lot of five-year-olds are not doing this but they should be able to do this because research says that they can do this at age five and it's like Maybe it's something about Vancouver kids. Mm. Maybe they're getting a different experience than the kids in California where mm. the study was done, right? So maybe the parents are are focusing on something for the, like, to teach their kids that's different than different city or different culture, right? Yeah, yeah. and um, it hasn't necessarily hit. Um, the kind of like the child development side, but definitely like along like the infant and like the baby side, like there has been recently like this very big push to replicate a lot of these like very classic studies across different centers and like all over the world. And so I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that like as like time progresses because we want to know like, you know, is what we're finding here the same as what we're finding somewhere else. Um, We have the luxury though within like the field of like number research in some ways in that like we've been able to see that like okay by age five they can kind of map number words to precise quantities right Mm -hmm. but again like that's mostly done in like the the western hemisphere Mm -hmm. so we don't know if it's going to necessarily be the same with all cultures because we also know that like other cultures represent number and time and space differently than we do so i mean that's always kind of a challenge and that's something that um i'm hoping my future work will kind of like shift towards as Mm -hmm. well and not only looking at how like english-speaking kids 
do this but also like children who kind of speak languages that think and represent number a little bit differently might kind of use their intuitive number sense differently than maybe we would yeah and i imagine that is also like a huge implication right like with the work that you guys are doing that's (laughs) that's one of the goals is to be, be like well we know that if a parent does this with their kid they'll be better off at this task or they'll be able to do this better and that is really important like that is something that is why we do research is to say how can we improve things or how can we change things and and manipulate things to to make people better or uh to help people um yeah the one question that the other question that i had coming yeah. back <laughs> late to it now <laughs> is there's a debate in adult adult populations that uh uh, males are generally better than females at arithmetic problems and females are generally better at verbal and, and vocabulary, pro- like better with vo- vocabulary than males. But does that hold true for infants where you're talking about this innate ability or intuitive sense of number? Yeah. Does that hold true for infants where they're like you? W- I wouldn't expect as a researcher that you would see gender differences. Do you? Yeah. So, um, there's a couple things to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of the work that originally kind of pushed this idea of like men being better at math and women being better at like the verbal stuff, a lot of that has to do with like society. Yeah. So like there have been uh, several studies that have shown that if you actually tell like young girls like, okay, like, you know, we like as girls, like we don't do as well on this test, but, yeah. you know, try your very best. They'll actually perform like below. Right. Like, self, right. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Kind of same thing, thing right? with like same thing with boys. You tell them like, okay, as a boy, you know, the other boys do really well at this and then you should do this. And the same thing kind of works like you can easily manipulate um, children's kind of intuitive sense of number in that way. And like mm-hmm. actually what's uh, really cool is my one of my colleagues like Carolyn Bear in um, the Center for Cognitive Development. She's actually currently running a study that actually does kind of facilitate some sort of manipulation i'm not going to get into it Mm -hmm. too much because it's an ongoing (laughs) study but it's this idea of like if you tell children like hey pretend that you're this other character like a superhero Mm -hmm. um like batman (laughs) like (laughs) and if you tell children hey pretend to be batman and batman's really good at this blue and yellow dots game and he can tell apart these quantities really good Mm -hmm. we want to see like okay are they going to actually be better and like some work like not related to numbers shows that like yeah children do perform better so i think part of it is that like you kind of have this expectation set Mm. and then you perform according to that expectation like maybe Mm. you don't you maybe subconsciously as like as a woman don't try as hard on the math test because you're like okay well women don't do good so whatever I'm not gonna try and so I think we don't find gender differences um, and a lot of work for the for the infant research right for the infant research for the children research like Mm. we haven't i it's not as yeah like it doesn't have as big of an impact these 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 societal influences and pressures are not as clear to these younger individuals i'd imagine so it doesn't impact as much part of it is too is because we do something that's not very explicit like they don't know they're doing something to do with number Mm -hmm. right like they're just shown like these dots and they're like hey which side has more or how many dots are over here versus over here like they don't know that we're testing their number ability right but if we tell them like hey this is a good game about math like it's gonna be a lot of fun that might influence their performance and so we have to kind of be very careful to create these games for kids that tap into what we're trying to tap into without actually telling them what that thing is yeah and um that's also one of the things that we always make sure that like you know 
parents know and that the kids like we're very careful to like not say that because we don't want to influence their performance but as far as I'm aware of it, especially like the work that you know has been done like kind of like around me within my lab with my colleagues has shown that there's like no mm-hmm. uh, gender differences unless there's some sort of manipulation like where yes. we tell the kid this is a math game or something yeah. like I that. I know a lot of from a lot of uh, the work that you do in, in developmental labs the work that they do is very scripted for a reason right they, mm-hmm. they, they say the same thing to every child because they don't want to influence them right. just like you say and that's that's a huge strength in, in your area is that everyone's treated the same. There's no influences on who's who's doing the, the manipulation or who's doing the experiment. It's all should be pretty much the same. Yeah, it's actually it's actually really funny because I don't think most people realize just how much information children pick up on. Like <laughs> they will assume that you are in a different group if you are wearing a different shirt color than the person next to you. <laughs> like they will assume that you guys belong to two completely different social groups. Right. And so like it's it's challenging in some ways because like, you know, you got to make sure that you kind of control for all these things. And then you read this paper that's like, oh, actually, kids are very sensitive to race. And you're like, oh, no, like, mm-hmm. was I the same race as my RA? Like, <laughs> yeah. I have to like kind of figure this out. So it's like, but I mean, things like shirt color matter to them, yeah. right? So like one of these other things that matter to them. Yeah. And, um, and like, are you wearing fun socks? Are you, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's actually um, because I I currently do a study with toddlers where we actually are using social cues. And so, like, you know, I have to make sure that, like, when I work with the RA next to me, that, like, we look similar enough that they're not going to be like, I like this person better because she looks prettier or something like that. Right? (laughs) It's amazing how much you can have an influence on a kid just as a researcher. And then let's compound that with parents (laughs) and teachers. Like, there's so much thing it's amazing how the little things that you do can really be picked up and influence a child's development. Mm-hmm. Very Absolutely. cool. What are you working on right now, Penny? Yeah, so right now, um, kind of a, in addition to this idea of like whether or not we can use spe- like specific linguistic cues to narrow attention differently, um, the project that I'm actually um, currently doing for my master's thesis involves kind of mapping out, you know, how this sense of number gets mapped on to language. So like when children kind of establish the ability to say like, okay, this is the word five and I'm going to actually give you five jelly beans. Like when that ability comes into play, how does that relate to their ability to kind of reason about other quantities? So for instance, like as adults, we not only use number words to talk about number, but we also use it when we're talking about length. Like we can say something is like, 10 centimeters long Mm. we can also use it to think about like area right like when we're like house hunting we look at like the square foot of a building right and those are all with numbers we say like 830 square feet and so we're using numbers in not only just number but we're using numbers in length and area and to most people that seems like well yeah of course because Mm -hmm. length and area are also number but they're actually not they're actually their very own separate dimension like we find that you know your ability to judge whether or not you know this line is longer than this line is not related to your ability to tell apart different dot sets or your ability to say that like this blob is bigger than this blob in terms of area does not relate to your ability to tell us which line is longer or you know which side has more dots on it and so we wanted to kind of explore like well first like we know that these are very independent abilities but you know once children kind of learn to use words in the domain of number how do they if they actually transfer that same knowledge to these other domains as well and so um i 
been testing five-year-olds to 13-year-olds, mm-hmm. which doesn't even seem like a child anymore. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, <That's full>. <laughs> <laughs> they're almost, they're like, they're full little person. They're going um, to be in a class that you're TAing in like yeah. three or four <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my my study kind of involves testing that really wide age range to figure out, you know, when does your ability to first uh, discriminate between uh, quantities and like number, length, and area, like how does that develop? Yeah. And when are children just as good as adults are? Right. And then also like once children map number words to precise quantities, how do they do that across different domains? And is it the case that once they can do it for number, they can also translate that knowledge for length and area as well right and so that's kind of like what my work is um, currently doing in addition to like you know obviously we ha- we're we need to know like what our kids working towards so we also test this with adults as well so right. we're kind of trying to understand like how these things develop and one of the challenges is that well there's not a whole lot of literature out there to start with about yeah. this because it's not really something that is of the I guess like most pressing mm-hmm. <laughs> matter and so we're, we were trying to, for many months, try to figure out like how we can actually test this in kids and how can we create stimuli that they'll understand. And so that's kind of always a challenge when it comes to like working with kids is that like, you know, sometimes even things that you do with adults, they don't translate to the things that you can yeah. do with kids. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, my work is kind of like this right now, like this open-ended question of like, well, how do these abilities develop and what can children do with these abilities once they require that integration between like language and their like intuitive sense of number yeah and so what have you found yeah so uh i found like a couple of interesting things well for one like i kind of mentioned um earlier on there's still this debate about um whether or not we kind of even have this intuitive sense and whether or not it's actually something that you know is not really a sense of number but a general sense of magnitude and so there's this whole field that believes like your ability to tell apart any sort of quantity like number or length and area is just under the same umbrella right and what we found so far is like you know if that were true then how good you are at saying like you know this side has more dots should be related to your ability to say which line is longer or which like blob is bigger, but we're not finding that. And so what that shows us is that these are very perceptually independent domains that don't actually interact with each other. But when you incorporate language, so when you ask children, okay, but how many of this do you see? Then we find that there is a very specific relationship between how good children are at saying that there are five dots, for instance, is related to their ability to judge that something is five units long or like five units big right right so like their ability to make these judgments in number is related to their ability to make judgments in length and area and so that kind of importantly shows that even though we have very different and separate you know uh, cognitive and perceptual domains we can tie them in with language in a very specific way right on yeah wow thanks denny for teaching us a little bit about um, children and number systems and all sorts of really fascinating cognitive developmental stuff that I knew nothing about. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll enjoy some tunes when we come back. Uh, we'll get into myth, misconceptions, and uh, a couple fun facts that one might throw around at the water cooler to show off to your best friends. Um, until best then, friends, I mean colleagues. Colleagues. <laughs> Acquaintance, strangers. I, I work with all my best friends. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, really? Damn. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so enjoy the tunes and we'll see you on the other side. Yummy, 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 yummy fruit salad. Let's make some fruit salad today. Oh, it's fun to do. It's a healthy way. Oh, take all the fruit that you want to eat. 
It's going to be a fruit salad treat The first step Peel your bananas The second step Toss in some grapes The third step Chop up some apples Chop up some melons And put them on your plate Now we've made it It's time to eat it oh, oh, oh. It tastes so good That you just can't beat it oh, oh, oh. Give everyone a plate and a spoon We'll all be eating it very soon The first step Eat up the banana The second step Eat up some grapes The third step Eat up some apples Eat the melons now, there's nothing on your plate Now we've had our fruit salad today oh, oh, oh. It's time to put the scraps away oh, oh, oh. Wash the bowls and wash the spoon Let's do it all again real soon Fruit salad Yummy, yummy Fruit salad Yummy, yummy Fruit salad Yummy, yummy Yummy, 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 yummy Fruit salad Fruit salad Yummy, yummy Fruit salad Yummy, yummy. That was one yummy track. No, it's gonna be like sorry if it wasn't. We don't go with yummy, yummy. Yeah. That was yummy. I was like, oh. I think it's yummy, yummy. Yummy, yummy fruit salad. So welcome back to Brain Buzz. I'm Denny with Kyle and Drake, and thanks so much for joining us for that fire track we just listened to. Thank you, Denny. Thanks, Denny. Bring us back. All right, uh, let's dive right in. Let's hear a myth. Let's get some misconceptions going on. What What's something that people don't understand or, or often get wrong about your area of research? Um, yeah, they get like everything wrong. <laughs> 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 um, no, uh, you know, going back to this idea of like, well, what kids can actually do from the time that they're born, right? Like we kind of tend to think that like babies don't really do much, that like children maybe don't have this very complex understanding of like the world around them, but we're finding more and more that that's not the case, mm. right? Like if you can have a newborn infant be able to kind of match the audio they're hearing to like a visual display of like number then you know where did they learn that because i mean they're fresh out of the womb so yeah. it's like there is becoming more of this trend of kind of understanding that a lot of things that we kind of thought that we would have to spend so much time teaching children they actually kind of come with the very foundation for that like right. already kind of in their hardware and so the real challenge for us is figuring out like how we can kind of even figure out like what that stuff is and mm. how does their experience kind of change and interact with the uh, things that they're already born with right so, so would the myth for all intents and purposes be that the myth is that children are a blank slate yeah. or, or infants or babies are a blank slate that are just ready to be exposed to everything and be taught everything yeah like i think that's definitely like one of the the main myths right like you know you as even like an infant like they're already paying attention and they're learning so much like from the time that they're born they can actually distinguish between like uh their own language versus another language mm -hmm. right and this is them just hearing kind of this gerbil in like the womb right yeah. and so there's so much that they already kind of have a 
general understanding of that, you know, we're still just beginning to uncover. And I think, you know, one of the other main myths that really kind of permeates, I guess, like my research is this idea, and I kind of already touched on it, is that traditionally when we think about number, we're thinking about something that is being taught in school, right? Like learning how to count, like, you know, doing math, like two plus two, like that's all things that you learn in school. Yeah. And so one of the biggest myths is that, you know, when I talk about like my research, I'm like, oh, I study how children like learn number, they think like, oh yeah, so you're like testing them, like, you know, when they've already had all this experience, but it's like, that's not always the case, you yeah. know? You're not um, doing math minutes. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, <laughs> and the fact that they already have an understanding of quantity before we even expose them to formal mathematics is something that's like really remarkable. And, yeah. you know, uh, as much as I like love studying how language interacts with cognition, you know, the studies that show that like, you know, these very like remote indigenous tribes that don't have a natural count system can still discriminate number and they but they reason about it differently than we do that's something that is really cool so even though we kind of are born with this intuitive sense we might kind of learn to use it in very different ways and when we talk about number we're not just talking about formal mathematics we're talking about like what we're already born with where do yeah. you think the the idea of children being a blank slate comes from i know that's a yeah. kind of tough question i mean is it just that like we think that as a baby you 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 shouldn't be able to know anything just mm -hmm. being born is that where it's coming from or well it's, i think it's a combination of quite a few things so you definitely have some cultures that that is kind of like a fundamental opinion mm -hmm. right like you believe that the baby doesn't do anything mm -hmm. until like you know they actually get older and they're actually able to speak like there's still right. a lot of cultures that believe that that until you have language you're not really thinking about the world right until right? you can actually show that you're thinking or right. show what you know you don't know anything yeah and se, like per se well showing and verbalizing to two like very different things two too. different things too right? yeah and that's yeah. also why like you know with um children who don't necessarily speak yet we use a lot of uh you know things like eye tracking measures to, or, and like you know getting them to actually gesture to us rather than relying on their ability to verbalize and actually you know there's a lot of studies now that we're being able to disprove because back then they didn't have the technology to do that so they assumed that when a kid couldn't tell you you know how many items they saw on the screen that they had no conception of quantity but now we know that it's like you know they still can know they can still understand but they're just they can show it to us in different ways right, right? they're not verbalizing yeah. it as we would after being taught <laughs> yeah, yeah so many times <laughs> yeah and i mean part of the this idea of children being a blank slate also has to do with like how that information is sometimes disseminated into the public right like you know you go back a couple decades and there's all these like parenting books that are like okay this is what you need to do with your baby and your baby is just gonna be like soaking up every single thing that you do so you know you have to act this way and you have to do this your baby's gonna turn out this way and the thing is is that you know to some extent that's definitely true you know there is definitely this component that like how your raise and the environment that they're in is going to shape your development but there's also the sense that like you know we're not this blank slate mm -hmm. you know our slate is already coming in like kind of you know filled with a whole bunch of information but our environment is shaping how we're using that information and right. so i think the field has largely moved away from this idea is like is it nature is it nurture with like which like every psych student ends up like learning about <laughs> when they hit developmental psychology but it's like no one's really debating that okay well there's people debating that but like <laughs> nobody within like the mainstream aspects of the field are really trying to debate like is it nature versus nurture like now we're understanding that like it's always a little bit of both mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Should you be playing Mozart while you have a child in the womb? Okay. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, there's there's always going to be studies out there that say that that's really good. There's always going to be studies that say, like, that's not doing anything. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can discount the 
um, the influence of having parent-child interactions though with the kids. So like, it definitely will matter if the fa- if the family's like together and teaching the kids number, right? Like they're sitting there, like they're playing, they're talking about like, uh, you know, like this is five, and then they're doing math together, they're reading together, they're, mm-hmm. you know, a parent is interacting with the child and saying like, you know, this is a cup, and just like even things like that. Like I don't think you can discount like that sort of experience. Right. Now, whether or not you can preemptively like you know play mozart and that'll help your baby is like a kind of a un like resolved question but (laughs) i will say like what you can do is like you know talk to your baby right Right. like like i said like children are kind of in a way like sponges and they're soaking up a lot of information and so the more that you communicate with them the earlier you can find that they're able to also communicate back with you right so kind of like the more input they get the more output you'll get but i would imagine that a parent that is going to the level of playing Mozart for their child while it's in the womb is probably going to do a lot of other things to make sure that their right. kid's doing well and going to be educated and other things are setting up. Yeah. Maybe they have higher socioeconomic status. All these other variables that may be playing a part in it are probably a bigger part of the story yeah. than the actual Mozart itself, right? Like, I mean, as you said, it's these, these interactions that you have with your kid. I mean, if you're, if you're really worried about how your kid's going to grow up and how you, how you influence your child, that in itself is going right. to influence your child because it shows that you care. I yeah. don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, the music is just an, one expression of that mm-hmm. other trait, which is that they're investing a lot of time, money, energy, whatever it might be, yeah. in the development of their child and spending right. a lot of time with their child. Mm-hmm. And that just so happens to be a common sort of expression of that trait. Mm-hmm. Well, we find that like with babies, for example, like mm-hmm. you'll almost always find that when they are in like a laboratory setting, we're gonna play classical music to calm them down. For right. instance, we're not necessarily gonna play like Rihanna or like Drake <laughs> or something like that, like to try to get them to be like really active. Now, yeah. <laughs> now to say though that classical music or like any sort of like specific type of input is more important than another type of input is really tricky. Right. right? So, and that's been something that, you know, I think the field as a whole has been debating about like through different avenues for many, many years. Like, you know, even um, there's this current idea that like, well, we previously thought that like just exposing a child to two different languages is actually going to be really beneficial to their cognitive development. So because we found all this evidence that like bilingual children were performing better than monolingual children in certain types of tasks. Right. And then this they, this kind of like blew up the field because they're like, oh, you know, if your baby knows two languages, they're going to be so much smarter. But it's like that's not always the case. And in some ways, like that will definitely help them. Right. Like and especially when you have kids that maybe don't have as much parent child interaction and maybe they're on the social, the lower socioeconomic bracket, having that second language can definitely compensate for in many ways to the things that they're not getting. Yeah. And so there, there first was this idea that like, okay, everybody needs to teach their kid another language. Yeah. And so I personally had like a lot of parents coming in. They're like, oh, my child's learning French. They're learning like ASL. Like they're doing all this other stuff. And, you know, I think it's, you can't say like, no, you shouldn't do that. But to say that it's going to give you like all these benefits is something like it's really dependent on the situation. Right. Yeah. And so now there's also this idea of like, well, is the type of input like is it the type of input that matters and so there's been some research that's looking into like is it the type of language that also matters too Mm -hmm. like does it matter that the kid is learning two very distinct different types of languages like maybe english and mandarin versus maybe something like you know spanish Spanish, yeah yeah. yeah. or like spanish and italian who kind of like you can yeah they're very similar in many ways and so now there's that idea of like okay is it just you need extra input 
or do you need very specific types of input? Right. And to be honest, like we don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to discourage parents when they come in from like being like, not. oh, my child listens to like <laughs> classical music all the time. My child is Go in all it. these things. Like, of course. But I don't think that, you know, we should be able to like tell people that like it, this is the one thing that you do and your child's going to be a super baby genius. Yeah, so, yeah. There, there's more <laughs> than just like <laughs> I guess the way I could say it is. Just because you played Mozart doesn't mean you can neglect your child and still assume they're going yeah. <laughs> to turn out to be a great child, right? Yeah. Like there's all these other things that play a part. And it's not just because you do one thing that you get a genius child. <laughs> right. And I think we also get a lot of parents, um, especially coming into lab that have all these questions for us about like, well, are there like educational apps that they should use? Do they even have their kids like on iPads right. and stuff like that? And I think a lot of it has to do with like how, like what is that input doing, right? Is mm -hmm. it just something that's supplementing their like already like kind of blooming and blossoming experiences? Or are you just trying to use it just for the sole purpose of like giving them an experience because you're depriving them of another experience? Right. Yeah. 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 You're, you're moving social interaction to right. possibly improve, say, arithmetic or, or hand-eye or whatever it is, right, with, with yeah. the apps, right? So it's like... Well, it's the problem, it's the problem, as it always has been, with brain training apps. It's like, well, yeah. you know, can we prove that there's actually any benefit beyond a practice effect, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is what, what you see in most of these studies when they look at adults is it's just a practice effect. Yeah. Yeah. So they've done this a hundred times. You get better so. at what you're doing if you do a test once. You do, you're yeah. better the fifth time you've done it than yeah. the first time. But, but you know, like... I think you're entirely right in that, yeah, you can't, you can't just give this kid the iPad with this, you know, fun educational game on it yeah. and then deprive them of that same hour of interaction with mm -hmm. the parent or with a sibling or well, friend th or yeah. something like that. Yeah. That's a, or, or playing with a book or, it's or a very different experience. It's a yeah. very different experience having a kid play with an iPad to give you a break from the child versus playing an, an application with your child and engaging with them while they're yeah. doing it. Right. Like, Obviously, I'm not a parent. <laughs> I haven't experienced this <laughs> massive amount of stress that it is, there, there is with, with uh, raising a child. And I'm sure you do want breaks from the child. But you don't have to yeah. be stimulating the child the whole time. Like getting that social interaction is really important. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of people's lives is interacting socially. But also being uh, questioning things, being able to improve your mm -hmm. arithmetic, your verbal, uh, your languages. Those are all really important things. Right. So it's like supplementing things is really important not just going down one rabbit hole and sticking to that hole <laughs> yeah there's a lot of actually a bunch of like cool research because my kind of like my initial interest in developmental psychology was this idea of like how like different factors can actually shape like your language development so that's kind of like my first jump into research was looking into things like that and mm -hmm. there's a bunch of cool stuff and, and things that even i did as an undergrad that looked into how very specific parent-child interactions kind of shaped their development and we know that for example like parents that speak to their children more those children tend to have like um larger vocabulary is at like a younger age and like children who don't have as much parent-child interaction you know asking your children these like um information seeking questions like what is this versus telling them this is an apple right like those types of things like even just probing for their opinion kind of will also improve like their vocabulary and performance on certain cognitive tasks right. like so there's like some evidence that we're finding so far that like you know you can start doing these little things but a lot of it has to do with like the type of interaction and like the quality of that interaction that might have like cognitive benefits right but, um, but yeah, but there's there's a lot of stuff like that that gets like published every year within like, you know, popular media. And I think that the best thing to do is always take that with a bit of grain of salt. Um, so, again, like it's it's always about like quality, not um, not only just quantity right? Mm -hmm. that matters. And so absolutely yeah. there's not one thing that will 
guarantee X, right? So with education or with anything with development and child yeah. children, it's like you can't equate one thing to to being the main reason why children are turning yeah. out the way they are. Yeah, and I think that's important in all research too. It's being able to be critical about what you're reading too, right? Right, yeah. and I think there's also this uh, sense that like. We like to think that if we give somebody a very specific experience, it'll help them, right? Mm -hmm. Like that we'll see like these drastic improvements. And there is a lot of work that shows that, well, we have individual differences and some of those individual differences are biological. Like now yep. how, what our biological, um, you know, abilities, how that interacts, you know, with the kind of expression of those abilities, like in our natural world, like that's something that can change based on the environment. And so one of the challenges is figuring out, okay, so how can we take something that you're already born with and kind of maximize it? Yep. But if you don't already have a lot there, like, I think we're still trying to figure out, like, what can we do to, like, kind of supplement that? Yeah, get you up to a reasonable yeah. level where you're, you're functioning well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. I mean, that that's a really cool myth. Uh, I mean, that is the predominant myth in my mind when it comes to babies and development is like <laughs> yeah. babies are a blank slate. So it's, it's been told, it's been said so many times in my life and so many people think that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting hearing about the, the research being done in your area. Uh, that's kind of disproving this fact that they are, there's innate abilities in, in babies. They have yeah. these skills that are really just, they are not a blank slate when they come out. <laughs> They're mm -hmm. ready to go. <laughs> They're ready yep. to learn. <laughs> and they've got stuff they've already acquired mm -hmm. amazingly before they've actually been exposed to the, the real world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, do you have a cool fact, a, a water cooler fact? I want to kind of maybe like briefly move away from this idea of like number, 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 because that's all we've been talking about. Yeah, because sure, the other yeah. thing that I've been like emphasizing that I'm really interested is how language interacts with number. And so I'll kind of go over like two cool studies that like or two findings from studies that cool. show um, that are very much related to like what we've been talking about. But we have this idea that like, you know, even like language is something that is very human specific. And a lot of research has kind of focused on like, well, why do humans even need language? Is it because like, you know, monkeys who are our closest relatives, like they just can't speak and that is why we have language and they don't and so there was this really cool study and i'm not going to tell you the name of it because i think it's more fun if you just google <laughs> this um <laughs> this thing and you can just look at um will you marry me monkey and there's a <laughs> there's a video of it okay i highly recommend that you spend some time doing that maybe kyle can pull it up and just play the soundtrack at one point <laughs> but there was this really cool study that they wanted to ask this question of like hey why do we have language right as humans mm -hmm. and so what they did is they took um Recess macaques, which are primates, but they're not like very like close to us along like the evolutionary chain. And they x-rayed their skulls. And what they found is that when they did that, they could kind of generate a computer model of like how their like um, vocal tracks and stuff like that could produce human-like speech. And they did the same thing with like humans and stuff like that. So they, these are all like computer generated. But what they found is that they actually have the vocal capacity to produce like speech-like sounds. Hmm. And the video sounds very creepy, but <laughs> definitely listen to it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but essentially like they found what the purpose of the study was to show that, you know, it's not the case that other animals are like, unable to, unable to yeah. produce speech, but that their brains are not speech ready. Right. And so, you know, the question of like, well, why do why do why do our brains have speech then? Because if it's the case that like you know monkeys can presumably like form words, then why don't they? Mm -hmm. And there's um, another cool study that kind of 
looked at why we might have even had language to start with, and but they did it in not a very obvious way. So they looked at uh, baboon troops, and they found out that like baboons have this enormous ability to remember so many different uh, relationships. So like baboon troops are huge. They're like maybe like 500 members, mm-hmm. right? And in order to survive in that troop, you have to know who you're friends with, right? right? Who is your immediate family? You have to know if you're like one of your immediate family members is fighting with someone else. Right. You know, That's Sally and Bob are arguing. They've had yeah. a hard time last but you few also, weeks. But you also have to know if that group, <laughs> so like if Sally's group, yeah. right? Like that Sally and Bob were together. Sally and Bob were together. They broke up because they broke up. Jim, yeah, maybe over, maybe yeah. Bob went over and he yeah. met with like Jessica, and now right. they're together. You have to know that, yes. but you also have to like in these small like little clusters, you have to not only remember what the individual relationship mm-hmm. is between every single member within the larger troop. You have mm-hmm. to remember what it is within those smaller subgroups, mm-hmm. but then you also have to remember how the subgroups interact with each other too. Yeah. So that way, if your subgroup is fighting with another subgroup, you know to stay away from them. But you also have to know if like you know your best friend that's in also your subgroup is fighting with just one person. And another mm. subgroup like you have to remember that they don't invite that one to the party because they invited joe to the party right. and he doesn't like jimmy or, or yeah Sally or whatever <laughs> right and so <laughs> there's a lot of drama it sounds like there's the, a lot of drama there's a lot there's a lot of drama there's there's always a lot of drama <laughs> in those in those baboon troops i'm telling you so <laughs> that's wicked <laughs> but yeah but so this idea that like well they have to remember so much information it's a very complex hierarchical yeah. system and so one of kind of the theories is that well, maybe we evolved language, not kind of because like just spontaneously, like we needed language, but it's more of the sense that like there was already this complex hierarchical structure in place and the need to maybe kind of add information to that hierarchical structure and the changes to that structure, like over time created this system through which we could kind of use that to kind of incorporate our natural vocal capacities. And so there's kind of like these like more emerging studies that show like, you know, that we're not so far removed from like other animals, yeah. right? But then we have this unique ability that allows us to communicate and reason about the world in a way that other animals can't. And so there's still like this like ongoing debate of like, well, now we know that actually other animals can like physically produce this, but then what is it about our brain that makes us different, mm-hmm. right? And so this idea is that maybe it's some sort of like system that evolved from maybe a complex hierarchy that allows us now to produce language but there's still like a lot of debate about it very cool that's amazing there's some cool facts on language and misconceptions about babies not knowing anything yeah (laughs) (laughs) which are now have been somewhat debunked (laughs) (laughs) awesome i think we should say thank you to denny for uh using language to help educate us on some stuff that we had nothing yep. like i knew nothing about so yeah. thank uh, god we can use words and language <laughs> yeah or else this would be a shitty podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks again denny I, yeah. it was it was really it was really fun having you on and talking about your work uh something that we haven't done we haven't talked about yet and we hopefully will have more developmental researchers on in the yeah. future <laughs> uh, you guys are doing stuff so that, that's re- there's a huge uh, real world implications mm-hmm. that are associated with the work that you guys do. We all are babies at one point in our lives, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we progress. So. And I guess well before maybe before we kind of yeah. and I should say like one of the other misconceptions is that developmental research only involves work with children and babies, right? Mm, yeah, but point. actually, uh, developmental research is not just about the little ones, but we also care about like what we as adults do, and especially like you know, like Kyle made the comment about like you know what happens to cognition as you age, right? Like that's still a that's core. A question, question yeah, yeah right to absolutely psychology. So it's lifespan yeah like, it's all lifespan it is psychology. about the lifespan yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah we're developing not just as as children we still develop 
a little bit less yeah. as adults maybe but we're still developing yeah so. and i think it's important to get that spectrum right so yeah. and even if you you may not consider yourself interested in developmental psychology but honestly if you're interested in like you know anything yeah. <laughs> you are interested in an aspect that is related to developmental psychology. i mean i mean i think of, i think of so many people are saying like oh i wish i was i wish i was 18 again or i wish i was this and i was wish i was this age like that's you talking about development yeah <laughs> how things change throughout your development mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that hasn't said something about the past or the future. Yep. Like, so it's, it's all about development. Yep. We're all about that past, present we, and future. We love it. We love <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's constant. It's always in our heads, right? We're yeah. either thinking about the past or what's going to happen next, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Which brings us to a good point. Uh, in the past, we've had great episodes. So you can find those at brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can also get them on iTunes or Google Play, wherever else you might find a good podcast. We're probably there. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, please do not hesitate to leave us a review, leave us comments, say something nice. Uh, if you didn't enjoy the show, that's also okay too. Uh, if you think that you'd make a great guest on the show, absolutely, we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, you can get all of our contact information on brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at brainbuzzpod. Uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed. We know we certainly have. Denny, once again, just thank you, thank you, thank you for coming yeah, thanks on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again. Until next time. Cheers. Yep, cheers. All right, bye. Yeah. <laughs> bye. Bye. The intro track is Everything Goes, performed by Poolside. The song and the title fit the themes and elements that we want to convey throughout our podcast.